Left behind as a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jank by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jank. Oh my God! Do you see that? Everybody, welcome to this week's episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that examines the Left Behind novel series, so you don't have to. I'm your live Steve Angelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Wooey! Man, we are getting into the second part of Apollyon, The Destroyer is Unleashed. We got a lot of ground to cover, my dude. Yeah, and you know what? I I think I have to take back something I said last episode. I think that my on my first go-through of this book, I was kind of half listening to it. So like, it, I didn't really pick up of how action packed and like how much like a lot of moments that we, we, we've been waiting for since book one start kicking off in this second section. So you know what? It is starting to properly live up to hype. I think I was just in a bad mood the day I listened to it. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> I mean, look, say what you want, about the pacing in the individual books, and I'm going to have some things to say about it. As the series goes on, you hear me talk about the weirdness. The weirdness continues to ramp up, as do the stakes. So when we're going from book to book, pretty much the one thing we can count on is more weird stuff and more intense stuff. Now, that's in some ways good, and it's in some ways bad. Yeah. Oh, boy. The the stuff in this section. Whew. Uh, do you want to just jump right into it? Yeah, let's do it, man. So we're coming into chapter seven. Chaim starts out and they uh, he asked if someone else could drive. And he's like, it's been so long since I've been allowed to because he's kind of like one of the most popular people on the planet and has been for a few years now. And even before the rapture, he was like one of the top dogs of science. But he's such like a known entity that he's usually has like escorts and people driving for him. So that's uh, actually kind of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever kind of looked into this, but with celebrities, there comes a point where you are so famous and so rich that you don't drive yourself anymore. You don't really do a lot of things for yourself once you hit a certain level. So that's actually a pretty accurate thing that they put in there. Now, the reason why he needs someone to drive him is because they're going to go try to fetch Yakov. Yeah, Yakov is like Heim's like main driver guy. He has Yakov and Stefan, who are his two drivers. Well, they have to go get him because... Yakov is an alcoholic and he's uh, even though he's a believer now he's still drinking profusely and by this book's framework that means very very bad activity got to stop this at all costs and they actually give us an interesting anecdote about the women's christian uh, temperance union in the early of 20th century had yeah. an expression called fall off the wagon women would go around town and tell men to like stop drinking and get on their wagon and come with them to church. Well, uh, sometimes if they were drunk, that they would refer to that as falling off the wagon. Yeah, it's where the expression fall off the wagon comes from. Yeah, and uh, that actually reminds me, I've actually talked to a viewer a little bit about like the 
Alcoholics Anonymous to like Evangelist Pipeline that kind of is set up. That just reminds me of that. The listener was just talking about his like personal experience from AA as well as just some of the stories that he's heard about how like certain people were kind of just being pigeonholed towards like a certain spiritual framework. And and just that general idea. Oh, yeah. I can talk to you a little bit about that, too. Go for it. I was not in AA. I actually had a loved one who was, and it did wonders for their life. I know that there's a lot of controversy and a lot of opinions about Alcoholics Anonymous. I can say for this person, it worked very well, and I'm very proud of them. I was in a group called Al-Anon. It is also a 12-step program, but it is specifically for people who have friends and loved ones who are going through the regular AA program, or maybe who aren't, who are struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. And it's a support group. It's what you would expect from if you've seen movies with support groups. It's about like that. It was held in a church. There is a lot of stuff in 12-step literature that requires you to believe in a higher power. They say a higher power. They don't say God or Jesus or anything like that. The connection to evangelical Christianity and to just Christianity in general is really strong in those communities because one of the things in the 12 Steps is you can't do this on your own. You have to give yourself over to a higher power and they get real muddy with what the higher power is. The loved one that I had in Alcoholics Anonymous was an atheist. So they had to find a way to kind of square that circle. And a lot of what their sponsor would tell them is that higher power can be an idea. It can be the best version of yourself. It can be other things. They were very open about it. But underneath and kind of from the origins of AA, there's still a lot of God stuff in there. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah, and that whole higher power thing just being, like, simply an idea, like, uh, trying to shift away from just being gods, like, hey, you need, like, a a telos, like, a reason for being, so I'm glad that's kind of shifted away from just, like, an evangelical tool, but very much, like, there are certain places that it's still pigeonholed into, like, a certain spiritual corner. So anyway, they are going to fetch Yaakov. This is kind of an alcoholic trope in literature, but Chaim's like, I know where he is. I know the bar he's at. Okay, so uh, I know both me and you have played Cyberpunk 2077, and doesn't like <laughs> the, the description of the drive into this just like read like you're you're playing Cyberpunk or it's just a Neil Stevenson novel? Oh, dude, Jerusalem is Night City. We get some boomer posting about how every sin was available on the street corner, how the whole city had changed. The city of God and God's chosen people had been desecrated. Like it's borderline Sodom and Gomorrah yeah. type imagery, but it's in this dystopia. And remember, Israel is the place that hasn't been destroyed by the earthquake. So all the infrastructure is still there. Mm-hmm. So they talk about the neon and like basically going through a red light district and they go to a bar called the harem. <laughs> Just sort of Jesus Christ. I'll even put in like a quick quote from the book. As Buck drew farther into the city, he saw strip clubs, tattoo parlors, fortune telling shops, and triple X rated establishments. Ripper docks, poser gangs. There's a there's a pizza driver trying to get a pizza to his destination <laughs> in 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Nostra will like kill him. Oh God. If you guys haven't read Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, do yourselves a favor, even if you don't like cyberpunk read that book yeah that's on both of our top five favorites of all time oh yeah 
we cut back again to Ray. Now we left off with Floyd and Ray on the porch talking about Hattie and Floyd spends a minute kind of talking to Ray about his experience with the rapture that he had lost his wife, but prior to the rapture had also, he and his wife had had a miscarriage and they lost a young child in a bus accident. So his journey isn't that different from Ray's. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of loneliness, a lot of regret. So Floyd's being set up as kind of a Ray parallel. He's a little bit older as well. He's got that sort of fatherly guy in charge sort of energy about him, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. They're comparing experiences to sort of stop Floyd pining for Hattie as much as he is. It's like, hey, looks like we have like a similar thing. So you probably shouldn't be rushing too far into a relationship with someone else that you're just basing on physical attraction, which I mean, Rayford, um, you kind of did that. Uh, Yeah, he's almost like, bro, I've been there. Bro, I've been there. Don't really rush into it or you're going to have to be scooping her body out of the bottom of the tigress. And honey, you don't want to do that. Oh, God. And and even so much about Hattie, too, because it's low-key Hattie bashing. It's like, look, we know she's hot. Like, just calm down. Good old-fashioned Hattie bashing later on. So there's a lot of intercutting back and forth in a lot of these chapters. So we may end up mentioning a few events that happen in succession without cutting back as quickly, just to make a little bit more sense of the narrative. So Buck and Hyam walk into the club. So just imagine 33-year-old Buck and... 60 plus year old Hyam Rosenzweig walking into this club called the harem. And like, it is, it is about what you would expect from this weird cyberpunk esque bar scene where like everyone's dancing. You got people like making out in the corner. You got like a, a, a bar that's like bumping, selling everyone drinks. That sounds awesome. Buck is looking around. He keeps on getting a, what are you looking at glare? And it made sure to specify that not all the couples were made up of both sexes. This was not the Israel he remembered. So they tried to a Sodom and Gomorrah reference. Yeah, there's absolutely some like low-key anti-Semitism mm-hmm. that we're going to see in a couple of times in this section about like Israel has lost its way. And not that they haven't said that before, but they really get into it in this section. So Buck assumes because he looks up and sees Yaakov standing on a table and kind of carrying on in front of everyone. Buck makes the assumption that he is wasted. Mm-hmm. Which is not the case. Not the case. Hyam can't take the side of it. He's like, I can't do this. I'm, I'll wait in the car. And he leaves. Turns out, Yaakov is actually preaching. Yeah, from his POV, like he spent a lot of time at the harem. So like the moment he became converted, he's like, oh, I got to tell all of my friends at the bar because they, they got to know this message. Oh, yeah. And so he immediately goes there and he's not winning any converts. Poor guy. Mm-hmm. Well, he's in almost what I would call like a holy revelry. Yeah. He's got the fire in him. You know, he's got the spirit. Like if you've seen Blues Brothers, like he's doing backflips down the aisle. Like he is a newly converted saint. He's all fired up and he wants to tell everybody, which in the context of the story, I don't blame him. Yeah. Like if I had just had this conversion and seen the miracles that he had seen as kind of minor as they were, I'd want to tell people. Yeah. Proclaiming I'm going to be an evangelist. I think when uh, they get him outside of the bar, Hyam says something to the effect of like, yeah, I wish you were drunk. Yeah, that's exactly what he says. Because now he's going to have to deal with him. <laughs> we also have this interesting like side thing where like Buck can't understand what Yakov is saying. He's like, hey, do you speak English? And some just guy goes, kill the English and the Americans too. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. I'm going to bring this up later, but it is surprising to me with all the time that he has spent in Israel that Buck doesn't know at least 
some Hebrew, like enough Hebrew to get by. Yeah. Like what kind of a globetrotting journalist are you, dude? Right. I, I guess maybe they just didn't want to make like the book inaccessible to people that didn't know Hebrew, but this could have been like an excellent like opportunity to teach like, you know, a few Hebrew phrases. Like, I mean, well, well you have like a little bit where they teach you like the Hebrew words for Jesus and Messiah, which is Yeshua and Hamashiach. Yeah. Well, that's about all we get. Yeah, that's about it. So they get Yaakov out of the bar. They also meet Stefan while they're in the bar. So Stefan is kind of watching Yakov, kind of keeping an eye on him. Yeah. We're back to the safe house. So we got Ray, Ken, Floyd, all of them are back at the safe house. Ken is actually in the basement reading Donnie's technical journals. Mm -hmm. Ken is kind of becoming a Swiss army knife for the team. Like he is super smart. He's very technically minded. He's a pilot. He's a fighter. He's a really, really well-rounded character in terms of the things he can do. He is kind of a Heinlein-esque competent man. He's kind of like just filled in like all the gaps that they've had in like the skills that they need. Like if, uh, if they need something done, Ken can usually do it. And also we get a little bit of his backstory in this section that's like kind of funny and interesting. So the plan is they start talking about how they're going to get everybody out of Israel, meaning mostly Buck, Chloe, Zion. He and Ray are going to both fly to Israel. They're going to go pick up the team from Hyams with a helicopter. Mac is going to set them up a GC helicopter that they can steal and then pick everybody up, get them to the airport, get airborne, get back to the States, to the safe house. Mm -hmm. So Chloe calls Buck, talks about the plan. Buck doesn't want to talk to her right now because he's in front of Hyam. He doesn't trust Hyam. Now, it's not about Haim being malicious, like he's going to sell them out on purpose. It's more about, well, Cameron, you don't have to do that. I'll just talk to Nikolai and he'll work everything out. And it's like, Haim, you still don't get it, buddy. I, I know that you like this guy. He does not like us. Buck actually ends up going to the Wailing Wall after he leaves. So Haim, they get Yaakov, everybody goes back to the estate. Buck goes to the Wailing Wall and there's GC guards all over the place. Um, they're reminding the crowd that the witnesses are marked for death, we remember from last time. Yep. I just pointed out here, the tensions are really growing in Israel. Now, it's not going to fully boil over until the next book. That's not a spoiler. It, it is the halfway point. The book is signposting it all over the place. Yeah, I noticed that too. Like, there's a few sections that I'm like, oh man, this is some tense stage setting that's going on where like there are actual like giant stakes against the characters and they even reference that like, hey, we're supposed to trust in God, but we also have to have like some finesse to get out of this because it's going to take more than just God to like get us through this in a way. The thriller elements that were in something like Nikolai have been amped up to 11 yeah. now. I definitely agree with that. So there's a guy in the crowd because the GC guards are saying these guys are going to be marked for death. Guy in the crowd goes, what if I shoot him? And the GC guard just goes, I don't see anybody here who would testify against you. Yeah. <laughs> and so the dude whips out a sniper rifle. Just, yeah, just, know, just, just pulls he a just sniper has. rifle out of his inventory. Yeah, he's a video game character. He just pulls out a sniper rifle. And what do the witnesses say? Can you read that quote? Come nigh and question not this warning from the Lord of hosts. He who would dare come against the appointed servants of the most high God. Yea, the lampstands of the one who sits high above the heavens. The same shall surely die. They say the Old Testament version of around and find out. Yeah. <laughs> and then they vanish. Yeah. 
they literally teleport. So we end chapter seven with them teleporting and start chapter eight. They teleport to the Mount of Olives, which uh, is a is a different hill in Jerusalem. It's actually where Jesus ascended into heaven. Mm-hmm. Because we hear a lot about like the death and the resurrection. There was a time after the resurrection, Jesus hung out for a little while and then ascended into heaven. And it's actually apparently where he will come again. So when his feet touch the earth again, he will descend at the Mount of Olives. So remember that for when we get way later in the series. And I know you made a Skyrim reference an episode or two back, but this is like the most gray beard that we get because they just teleport on top of a mountain, then just preach with such a volume that every word is clear for miles around this mountain. Hearken unto us, servants of the Lord God Almighty, master of heaven and earth. Lo, we are the two olive trees, the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. If any man will hurt us, fire proceedeth out of our mouths and devoureth our enemies. If any man dare attempt to hurt us, he must in a manner be killed. Hear and be warned. We have been granted the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of our prophecy. Yet we have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as we will. And what is our prophecy, O ye generation of snakes and vipers, who have made the holy city of Messiah his death and resurrection likened unto Egypt and Sodom, that Jesus of Bethlehem, the son of the Virgin Mary, was in the beginning with God, and he was God, and he is God. Yea, he has fulfilled all the prophecies of the coming Messiah, and he shall reign uh, and rule now and forevermore without end. Amen. And we have a lot of witness content this uh this section like the witnesses are front row and for a good part of this yeah book, dude so. and i like started for a little bit trying to put verses like chapter and verse references to the things that they were quoting mm-hmm. but it becomes this biblical mishmash they're not like saying verses in context anymore like just like answering they're not being like bumblebee from transformers that only talks to the radio where they only talk to the bible mm-hmm. they're now just taking stuff that's in the bible that sounds biblical and they're like mishmashing it like there's a verse here and a verse there and like the the snakes and vipers thing that's jesus and then there's a couple of other things and i found this dialogue to be kind of reminiscent of what the books do yeah because at first they feed you a lot of actual scripture up front and then the more that the plot goes on and the more that tim LaHaye injects his ideas into the story the more that he starts kind of mushing things together and then like twisting things around and kind of cherry picking different stuff that he likes exactly it's kind of like you've given an ai tim LaHaye's philosophy and like the what it's having to learn off of is the bible and that's just elia moish's dialogue Yeah, dude. They actually say that the animal sacrifices that have been restarted in the temple are a stench in God's nostrils. That is a specific call out in another one of those Jerusalem has been compromised. It has fallen into decay. It is like Sodom. I think you even said Sodom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he straight up calls it like like before it was kind of just dance around. No, he just straight up says this is like Egypt and Sodom. All right. So those of you who are not familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, they were two cities that were exemplars of sin. Uh, There's a lot more that goes into that, a lot of homophobic stuff and a lot of other ugly stuff It's in the time of Abraham. Look it up when you get a chance. Maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode. When you hear somebody refer to something as a city as Sodom, it is basically saying it is a city of evil. 
And so that's what they're calling Jerusalem and saying like the Jews have lost their way. So there's another bit of that anti-Semitism in there. So some GC guards try to army crawl up the hill to take shots at them. They draw a beat on them. Yeah. Just like everybody else, they get toasted. They're pretty much army crawling up this hill. They're almost blinded by the like the holy saint light of Eli and Moisha. They fire a few rounds at them, change magazines, fire a few more rounds, and then their rifles go silent as well as the crowd because blinding white light bursts out of their mouth again and just evaporates the guards in a stream of phosphorus vapor. Oh my God. And see, I forgot to mention they made it rain again and then made it stop. That's another yeah. one of their favorite tricks is to be like, Hey, you want this rain back? Stop sucking. They have like a few really powerful spells that they can do in limited times per day and dragon breath and alter weather are their two favorites. Heavenly beings these days don't know how to do anything. All they know how to do is charge their phone, be smelly, quote Bible, shoot fire. And lie. And lie. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Buck takes a minute to say, oh, those guys just went to hell, too. Yeah, yeah, horrified at the loss of life and the eternal damnation the guards had gambled against and lost. Yeah, dude, it's bad. So Buck, after being traumatized again, because Buck doesn't take death very well. Yeah. We've noticed that, and that actually continues to be a through line from his kill in Soul Harvest, moving on. He actually goes back to Hyams, decides he's going to scope out per the plan where a helicopter can land. And I just wrote like Metal Gear Buck yeah. here because he's like sneaking around corners and trying to climb up drain pipes and stuff because he doesn't want to wake anybody up or have them see he's sneaking around because they don't want to alert Hyam to the plan. And he has this whole like misadventure where he barely is able to clamber up onto the roof and then can't get to the door that leads to where the helipad is because there is a helipad on this place. It used to be an embassy. Mm -hmm. And then he decides to climb back down again to his room, bumps into Chloe, who is out there and like freaks himself out and falls <laughs> off the ledge and then has to pull himself back up. It's not a very flattering action scene for Buck. It's very dumb. Mm -hmm. And even Chloe calls him a dork. And I was like, yes, yes, you're a dork. He uh, he can't find a key to that door up there. And that and getting that key and finding out how to get access to the key to the helipad door becomes a major reoccurring uh, plot point of this section as well. Like that key is a major driving force of the plot. Yeah, they've got to coordinate, get the key, get everybody secretly packed, get everybody to the roof, coordinate that with Ken and Ray. One steals the chopper, one keeps the plane fueled at Jerusalem Airport. Everybody's got to go off like clockwork if they're going to escape because yeah. it's going to be a stolen helicopter, basically stolen helipad. Everything's going to go off without a hitch. Spoilers, it doesn't. This is a weird, like, because after Buck screams, someone goes, everything all right in there? We heard a scream after they, like, like they cleared up, like, huh, newlyweds. That was a what? weird moment. I know. It's like, what, did he assume that they were having sex? Like, I, I think so. I guess like it's just it seems like such a 1950s sitcom thing like there should be a bad laugh track after it real quick back to Ray I just wanted to mention this he's contemplating that those who have been sealed might have protection and he doesn't know if it's just from the judgments or if it's from other forces so this is a minor retcon really Cyan in previous episodes has said oh no 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 we're protected from the forces of evil I believe that and so that kind of becomes the reality for the book now Ray is starting to question okay is it the 144,000 is it just 
them or is it everybody who has the mark? And he kind of goes into that a little bit. So it's a mild retcon and you'll see the reason for it as we continue on. Yeah, and that kind of flows into the whole aspect of where I think it's Zion later in this chapter. He's just like, hey, even though we have the protection of God, we shouldn't be cocky with it. We throw ourselves into a scenario where we're being like reckless with death. It might just happen. So we always have to stay on our Well, I got to be honest. You have precedent in the Bible for having the protection of God and being kind of cocky with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. Like they literally walked into a furnace. Like, no, nah, God will protect us. It's fine. Okay, that's fair. So I get, hmm. Yeah, that is a bit of a, I guess they have to d- do that just to maintain the tension in this book. Because if everyone like, Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that also this is one of the contradictions that I see in a lot of Christianity is that a strong belief in miracles. However, the further that you get away from the truly epic miracles like parting the Red Sea or not burning up in the furnace or Daniel in the lion's den or the sun standing still, the 10 plagues in Egypt, the further that you get away from those epic miracles that are recounted in the Bible in terms of time, the less people come to expect of miraculous occurrences. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's And it's something that I think is true in a lot of religions, but specifically Christianity. It's like, well, why doesn't God do that stuff now? And no one's ever been able to give me a satisfactory answer. Right. We get a little update. The GC is now saying the witnesses are concealing flamethrowers in their robes. <laughs> well, I guess that guy had a sniper rifle in his pants. So that's not too hard to swallow. Zion actually suspects that Nikolai has another trick up his sleeve against the witnesses and himself, and he's not sure what to do next, but he knows that they've got to get out of Israel very quickly once the conference is over. He gives everybody kind of a little update as they're making their way in and is telling them his anxieties. And the preaching begins for the second night of the conference. They don't linger on this one like they did the first night. Cyan talks about the seals, the trumpets, the vials. He's very judgment-focused in this one, and we're going to get another judgment by the time this section is done. But he specifically talks about that the fourth trumpet judgment is coming. So we're more than halfway through the judgments in total. Gotcha, and that one's the, the major one that affects the brightness of the, of the sun, um, if I remember That is correctly. correct. And he says an important thing here that I had a problem with. He says, is God angry with us? No, he's using every arrow in his quiver to get our attention. And I just wrote, no, no, he's not. Because if he really wanted to get your attention, he could go on TV. Yeah. If he really wanted to get your attention, he's all powerful. He could meet everybody individually. If he really wanted to get your attention, he wouldn't build the Rube Goldberg machine from hell to push you toward him. If Gavin wants to get my attention, Gavin can text me. No, Shane, I got to send fireballs down your house or like you don't, you won't really get. Oh, that's what that was for. You were letting me know what time we needed to record today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I sent a fireball in your living room with just seven on it. Any, any time else you were just like, no, Gavin, we can't record. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I've got to deal with the scorched living room, but. The animals are okay, so I won't hold it against you. Oh, that's good. Uh, We're going to go into chapter nine. uh, But but can can we just, though, is this not I hurt you because I love you? Yeah, it does have kind of like the abusive, like relationship kind of big red flag, like any negative thing that happens to someone. Oh, that's all for good, like good reasons. And like, I know I'm tipping my fedora here again and being all like our atheism, but like that just doesn't square with me. And I can hear Mm -hmm. the comments already like, oh, calm down. You're just bashing Christianity. Not entirely, dude. Like that's 
a bad doctrine. Like you shouldn't believe that God would hurt you to get your attention. That's not a relationship I want to have. I'm supposed to have a personal relationship with this guy. I'm not a fan of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to dwell on that for too long. Like I said, I've tipped my fedora enough, but you were right as we move into chapter nine, that the fourth judgment is going to make the world one third darker. And I kind of like what they said about this because this isn't in the Bible, the fact that it's going to become like winterized conditions. Oh, yeah. But they play with that implication. And I think that that's kind of fun. Yeah, honestly, like this judgment is where they go like really heavy into like a lot of the ecological effects. And it's like, it's not too extensive, but it is is kind of neat how they're kind of like stretching it like this. And this goes back into what we said before. Some of the most fun that we can have with these books is when they take like giant left turns and just start like vaguely interpreting certain verses for like world building. Yeah. Prophecy indicates that more scorching and parching of the earth comes later. So it's likely the darkening and resultant cooling is temporary. But when it occurs, it will usher in for however long winter-like conditions in most of the world. And when depressed friends and neighbors and loved ones despair to the darkness and gloom, show them that this was predicted. Tell them that this is God's way of getting their attention. We go back into what we were talking about in the last chapter. Totally. And he says, prepare, prepare, prepare. So he is saying, kind of contradicting the protection from the judgments. You get protected from the judgments, I guess, but you don't necessarily get protected from the fallout from the judgments. Yeah, the judgments don't kill you, but you still have to endure. An angel is not going to drop a parka off at your house. (laughs) As cool as that would be, like just, you know, biblical angel with all the eyes and the flames and everything, just like drops an Amazon box with a couple parkas in it at your house and is like, see you later. That's what I sound like. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. We have two day shipping. (laughs) Uh, We actually get a verse name dropped. uh, Revelation 8. 12. Oh, I know you got that good, good scripture. Hit me. Let me pull this out. (laughs) Every time it gets me. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. So, yeah, like darkness is about to descend upon the world. Yeah, and they make the distinction that the sun's going to shine for one third as long as well as being one third dimmer. That'll like really alter a lot of the new cellular or solar equipment that is starting to have been put up. So that throws Carpathia's entire communication array into a a little bit of dysfunction and a power shortage. So we're probably going to have like brownouts next book. Yeah. And you know, I'm going to say something. Okay. Normally we bash these books for being a little internally inconsistent, but we already know that Nikolai is studying the prophecy. We know that he's reading the book. Mm -hmm. He knows this is coming and yet he built his whole global communication infrastructure on solar. Yeah. We are going to find out a little later in this section what the backup plan is, I think. I don't think that they really definitively come out and say it, but I think I know, at least for the power side of it, what else is going on. Okay, I'll look forward to that. I can't remember exactly the justification, but I'm excited. So we end this little portion with Mac talking to Buck. It's one of the first times Buck and Mac have really had a lot of conversation. He tells him that Nikolai is planning to kill both Zion and Matthews. Ah, 
that Nikolai's practically like rubbing his hands together, not sure who he wants to kill first. Yeah, because Matthews, like we're going back into what we were talking a little bit about last episode. Matthews and Carpathia are kind of on this big power struggle right now because the global community and Enigma Babylon are kind of like trying to one-up each other a little bit, and Nikolai does not like that. No. And he's got plans for Matthews, and we will see that stuff continue into the next book. Yes. That sort of power struggle that we're seeing there. So back at the safe house, Hattie calls up Ray to come see her and demands they take her to Israel so that she can kill Nikolai. So this is the second little Hattie saying, I'm going to kill Nikolai. Can we do a little recap real quick of who all wants to kill Nikolai now? Yeah, yeah. So we, we got, got Ray. Ray. We got Hattie. Hattie, like the people that have like said verbally that they want to kill him. Um, Hattie, Ray, Chloe, right? Chloe has not said it. Okay, I thought, okay, gotcha. Buck has Buck. said it, has had it in his internal monologue. What is it, has Ken said it yet? I think he's alluded to it. I think Ken just wants to kill somebody. Peter. Um, like, man, I uh, man, I sure would. Yeah, Ken just wants to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we know that about him. Ken Ritz lives by the sword. And I think we can lump Matthews in yeah. there too. Like it's been clear, like they've got a grudge, even though he has not come out and said it, but members of the tribulation force or tribulation force adjacent, definitely Buck, Ray, Hattie, kind of Ken. So that's four. Ray obviously refuses. Hattie's in no condition to travel. He doesn't want to get her involved. They're still trying to save her soul, so they don't want to put her in danger. Ken actually gets the phone, and we get more of this, like, good old 1950s dialogue. Some real old-fashioned Hattie bashing, too. Yeah. Rayford handed the phone to a puzzled-looking and scowling Ritz. Yeah, doll, he said. No, sorry, that's just an expression we old flyboys use. Well, sure, I'd like to be a doll, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, ma'am, I can't see anyway. Well, now, I hate to have you think less of me, but the truth is, if I could be manipulated by a pouting of a spoiled pretty little girl, I wouldn't be looking back on two divorces, now would I? And then he jabs at her for having a miscarriage as well. Yikes! In a way. Not really, well, he, he uh, patronizes, is that the word I'm looking for? He kind of patronizes her for, like, having a, a miscarriage. Basically saying, like, you're in no condition to do this. Yeah, and uh, then she hangs up on him because she's just done. And he just goes, little Spitfire hung up on me. You gotta like her spunk, though. And she is a gorgeous thing, isn't she? Ugh. Oh, and then, oh, God, oh, God, this line. Rayford shakes his head and goes, Ritz, you've got to be on the feminist top 10 most wanted list. Man, what a throwback. Come on, dude. That is like some Rush Limbaugh level of durher feminists. This is like a, like just a few years after like the lesbian Avenger thing in like DC. I don't know if they're piggybacking off on that, but like just by, but based on like the depiction of Verna Z and like some other gay bashing or LGBT bashing in this book. Oh, you're going to um, get some more in the next couple books. I think specifically book seven has some primo gay bashing in it. Oh, I, I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah, me either, but, bud. Oh, uh, <laughs> so they do come back to the house and they see Hattie doing physical therapy. She's trying to get her strength up. Like she's, she's yeah. trying to walk up the stairs and then down the stairs. Like she's, she's in a really, really bad state, but she's trying to do basically her own physical therapy. And Floyd has almost given up on telling her what to do. Yeah. And I was listening to this again with Alex in the room and Floyd says something to the effect of she doesn't know how sick she is, but I do. And Alex yeah. just from the other side of the room goes, Stupid Woms doesn't know her own body. Needs a man to tell her. 
they really like the Hattie bashing in this book gets to like super critical levels. Like all the other ones, yeah, they've they've mainly just used a Hattie as kind of like a vehicle to like show like no, what not to do. I don't know. We'll get more into it next episode with some of like how other characters that are on the side of God get treated compared to Hattie. And it's clear they're using Hattie of like, hey, if you act like Hattie, you won't be rewarded and your life is going to suck. Yeah, dude. It, it gets it gets gross next episode, but we'll uh, we'll move on until we get there. Yeah, we cut back to the Mac and Buck conversation and Mac lets Buck know he's planning to bomb both Zion and the witnesses at the same time at the Temple Mount. So remember that on Saturday after the end of the conference, Zion has a scheduled meeting near the witnesses to bring all of the locals together to have sort of a meet and greet Mm -hmm. type thing near where the witnesses are. And that is a ruse. That was Zion basically planting a red herring on the schedule so that they think he is going to be there when, in fact, he will be on a plane headed back to the States at that time. Mm -hmm. Nikolai's current plan is to go ahead and bomb them both when they get there. Yeah. And they're going to pin it on Matthews. So, again, it's another Nikolai masterstroke. Kill two birds with one stone. Pit people against each other. They're going to pin the bombing on Matthews. They know that killing Zion will have massive global fallout from both believers and non-believers because this guy didn't do anything to anybody. So Hyam is still holding out for Nikolai because we get a little bit more of Buck and Hyam conversation. And Hyam just is really like, look, Cameron, I understand what you're telling me. And I, you're a good friend and I, I love you like a son, but I love Nikolai like a son too. I think this is all a big misunderstanding that has gotten out of hand. And I think things need to just chill out, calm down. You guys need to have level heads and understand that he is not the villain that you think he is. But Hyam has agreed during the course of this conversation to not only come with Buck and the rest of the crew to the final night of preaching, he's going to have his conversation with Zion. Yeah, she's like, you know what? I'll I'll do it. It doesn't matter how late it is. We'll we'll do it tonight and have our little. Uh... It, did you catch the line? Oh yeah, yeah. Why don't you Why don't you just read us that little choice morsel in there? But he'll be very tired later, Heim, and won't you be also? Too tired for a good debate? You don't know the Jews, Cameron. Yikes. That one? I just wrote, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I told you there's some anti-Semitic stuff in here. And Yeah, actually, I had a, a Jewish friend of mine make a joke kind of similar, but that was kind of, like we've said before, Tim and Jerry kind of use this books as kind of like a vehicle to just sometimes say some pretty like, uh stuff. Yeah, that was a yikes a for me, man. Yeah. It's a bad look, Sweaty. Buck worries that Chaim will be caught in the attack at the Temple Mount. So he's kind of trying to figure out, all right, we're going to leave. Zion won't be there. How do we kind of low-key convince Chaim to stay home? Because we're still fighting for his soul as well. We can't have him die. He's a frail old man. We don't want to lose him. How do we kind of deal with that? We cut back to Floyd talking to Ken and Ray because Floyd has refused to go along with them to Israel. He's going to stay and watch Hattie. Yeah. He's having a little trouble. She's being a handful, according to him. And uh, what's his plan to deal with her? At least he says he's thought about it. Well, he said, I'm tempted to slip her a Mickey medical school style. And Rayford just goes, I haven't heard that expression in ages. How does that work? What does that mean? So he's just like, oh, that sounds like a good plan, buddy. Let's do it. Medical school style. What does that mean? Dude. 
I, I, okay, I don't know. Is that a thing you do to sleep when you're in medical school? Like, okay, slip a Mickey, that's a roofie, yeah. man. Like, that's like you're slipping somebody like in their drink, you're trying to drug them. Does medical school style, was it like as a prank or like something else? Because if it's something else, that's awful. I go on to say it's like where you put something in someone's IV and just tell them it's like a normal, like routine thing to trick them. But still, like, it's, the expression slip her a Mickey just does not resonate well. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I've definitely heard the phrase, but, like, in old-timey movies. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm there with Ray. Like, I haven't heard that one in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also refer to it as a Mickey Finn. It is a drink laced with psychoactive drugs or incapacitating agent given to someone without their knowledge. Oh, okay. Named after a character from 19th century Chicago. Allegedly would drug and rob his customers at the saloon that he owned. Ah. Okay. That's the origin of the phrase Mickey is referring to Mickey. Finn. Okay. We also have a little conversation about Hattie. Um, her rage is giving her strength. And I was like, Hattie's about to go super saiyan. She literally is fighting through the pain of her physical therapy so that she can be more in shape to kill. And I'm really into it. Like I'm, I'm here for Hattie. I'm rooting for her to be first in line with the gun. It's probably going to be Rayford that ends up killing Carpathia. But honestly, like how cool would it be if Hattie gets to like actually kill him? Well, they both want it real bad. Yeah. Comes down to who wants it more. I think that's pretty up in the air. Mm -hmm. And then we have a really weird exchange where Floyd is basically too to carry Hattie up the stairs because she's not supposed to be walking upstairs. She can walk downstairs fine, but upstairs is a problem. He says he doesn't feel comfortable carrying her up the stairs essentially because he's too Yeah, yeah. Problem is, Ray, I look for reasons to touch her to hold her, to comfort her. Now you're telling me to pick her up and carry her? And you want me to rethink my feelings for her? What a creepy guy. Oh, man, and I really want to like Floyd, too. But it's just like, man, dude, go outside. Like, take a walk. <laughs> go outside. Log off. Go outside. So we're back to Israel Oh, wait, again. wait, one more thing on that. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rayford reminds, hey, know that we're we're trying to, like, save her soul. We're not trying to, like, do anything else. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, okay. I, I didn't hear any enthusiasm there, Floyd. He's like, no, I got it. Yeah, save her soul. Yeah, oh my God. So Chloe tries to get to the helipad, but the key's gone. So the key used to be hanging up there during kind of day hours. The key is gone. So they're going to have to find that key and who has it now. Rosenweig uh, has the key now. They now have to get it without alerting him that they are trying to even get this key. Yeah, like if I had a locked door in my house and I had house guests over, they'd be like, can we uh, get the key to that locked door? I'd be like, why? (laughs) Stop being weird. We find out Yakov is coming with. Uh, His wife is now a believer. So, hey, we got another one, boys. Hayam kind of starts teasing them. He's like, I guess I'm in the minority now, huh? Surrounded by all you freaks. And he's even like, oh, okay. So does she have like the secret mark that all of you have? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, cool, cool. She has the mark too. All right. Yeah, I guess we all have it. And obviously I can't see these. I still think you guys are playing with me. Mm-hmm. And then Leon gives him a call. And I just wrote, Leon is such a boob. <laughs> Leon is a boob in this. He is a boob. So he's trying to send them a helicopter and Haim's like, no, I don't want your help. You've done enough. Thank you very much. And won't call him by his title again, which you know is going to get under Leon's skin. Yeah. Leon is ordering that Yakov not be in the party because remember, Yakov ran out in front of some GC guards firing a gun into the air last episode. Mm-hmm. He's not like wanted really because he didn't kill anybody let's just say he's wanted for questioning yeah 
That's where we end chapter nine. They're going to make their way to the stadium for the final night. We have an interesting line. Leon's just like, are you one of them? Because we don't hear Leon's section of, of the conversation in this. Thank God. But he just goes, no, I am not one of them, as you say. But if I find out that Nikolai looks upon these devout and passionate seekers of God with the consent that you do, I might just become one of them. We, we get our first like hint. Haim is starting to like re-question. I love Haim threatening to become a believer out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> Why he's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. So Ray and Ken making their way across the Atlantic planning to steal the chopper. The GC's grilling Mac about Ray's whereabouts. Because remember, Mac was assigned to monitor Ray and now Ray has disappeared. So it's like Mac is sleeping on the job. He's like, look, we're going to put two helicopters on the tarmac. You're going to steal one of them. The other one's for Nikolai. Work fast. And they're basically counting on the audacity of their plan to work. Like Mm -hmm. they wouldn't expect me to come back here so soon. So they'll never see it coming. Yeah. And then they're going to chopper the crew to the Gulf Stream. Everybody's going to be out a smooth, clean getaway because that always works. And then we go into another buck section. Chloe's basically like reiterating, hey, you know that key that we're trying to, to get? Yeah, it's, it's gone. We need to find out where it is without alerting time. Got a great little choice line in here about Chloe's shrewdness. Specifically says that uh, Chloe knew when to speak and when not to. Oh. I just wrote, Ah, because you know the subtext in that line. It's like, ah, the little woman knew when to shut her mouth. Yeah. We find out Hyam has the key in safekeeping for security risks. He gave it to Yakov. Yeah. Easy. Good old Yakov has the key. He's a new brother in Christ. Easy peasy. We got this. They check that one off their side quest list. For now. Yeah. It's going to get a little complicated. They arrive for the last night of the conference, and it is even more packed than the first night. The media is there. This is being broadcast literally everywhere, which I wrote later in my notes that this is like a fantasy for someone like LaHaye to have not only a captive audience in a stadium, but also worldwide broadcast on like cable news and worldwide news. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there's ever been an event like this that's been televised on like mainstream channels and stuff. This is the ultimate goal. Right. Yeah. Is being able to spread the gospel or, you know, have a captive audience to say your message in front of the world. Everybody takes their place in the crowd. Zion reannounces the rally on Saturday on the Temple Mount and he makes the statement. He says, We are enemies of the world system and we will have time to expose them down the road. Do not make a flattering introduction for me. They know who I am. They know what I'm here to do. I'm just going to go up on stage and do my thing. So we cut back to the safe house. Ray takes another call from Floyd. It turns out Hattie has been talking to Ernie, the mechanic from Powaukee, and she invited him to the safe house. Which uh, they do not like that at all, because Ernie, is Ernie confirmed to be a believer yet? We don't really know him all that well. Yeah, he's got the mark. And Floyd's like, well, she'd like to see him. And Rayford retorts, does she know he's got to be 10 years younger than she is? Floyd snaps back. So about the same age difference as Buck and your daughter. The one time they don't mention that uh, whenever Hattie and Rayford are in the same room that they had a thing for each other that would point out like a little bit of Rayford's hypocrisy. Just a bit. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's more Hattie bashing. It's like, oh man, as soon as she's uh, got her strength back, she starts boy chasing. Yeah. Might be boy chasing with ulterior motives. We cut back to Buck standing next to Zion uh, backstage uh, at the stadium after they just got done praying. And Zion and him are like, just going back and forth like, hey, 
How are you going to get the key? They're like, we'll, we'll ask Yakov for it and tell him, ask no que- uh, questions. It'll be fine. A guy leads them into some singing. They're singing, holy, holy, holy. People are just pouring into this stadium. People are still coming in as he's starting to preach. Yeah, he does the altar call at the beginning. Yeah. It's like, look, y'all heard me preach for the last two days. If you're ready to make the decision, come on down. And it takes an hour. Uh, yeah. Like people just being factory converted, like walking down to the front, saying the prayer, walking back to up to their seats. And it's an hour long procession. Come on down to the soul harvest. All souls must go to heaven. Those who are watching on TV, they pointed this out. Another miracle. People who are watching on TV can hear in their own languages. So it's the miracle of Pentecost again, but over the airwaves. So it's this kind of interesting little technological miracle that's occurring as well. And they said something that really hit me in the nostalgia feels. Mm -hmm. They mentioned the sound of thousands of onion skinned pages of Bibles opening up. Oh, and you know that sound, bro. That sound is playing in my head clear as day. I know exactly that sound. If y'all have ever been to church, you've heard that sound and you're hearing it right now. Just just like close your eyes and listen. Actually, don't. You might be driving. It's, it sounds like it's a little bit like rain almost. It's kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. It's a very, very comforting sound. Bible sound, Bible smell. They both have a thing, you mm-hmm. know? Now, can you pull up Revelation 8, 13? Yep. Because that's the core of Zion's message for tonight. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So it's the three woes. It's basically saying these are the judgments that are to come. Your translation says eagle. Some other translations say angel. Ah. Like, I don't know. I'm not a Bible scholar. Not an expert. Not an expert on anything. So I'm going to yourself. But that's so interesting that I find that in different translations, and sometimes it says eagle, sometimes it says angel. It might say, like, winged creature or something like that. Mm -hmm. That might be the, the original Greek. But yeah, that doesn't have any like footnotes on that specifically in my section. So that's interesting. But as he is preaching, the witnesses appear behind Zion. Ah, It's almost like Yoda and Obi-Wan appear behind him (laughs) and are kind of lending him their energy. They begin to speak. The GC guards draw their weapons, but then almost immediately drop them in fear as the witnesses step down off the platform and begin to walk into the crowd. Zion cleared his throat yet again and Buck stood ready if needed. He had wished Zion would simply ask for his assistance, but suddenly he smelled the dusty, smoky robes of the two witnesses and was startled when Eli and Moisha stepped up beside him. He turned as if in a dream and found himself staring into Eli's endless eyes. Buck had never been so close to the prophets and had to resist the urge not to had to resist the urge to touch them. Eli's eyes bore into his. Show thyself not to thine enemy, he said. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That is actually another quote from 1 Peter 5, 8. Oh, really? The whole devil as a roaring lion is an image that comes up a lot in different sermons. Mm -hmm. 
So this is what I was taught. I don't know any zoologists who can back this up, but apparently lions that roar out in the savannah are doing it to drum up prey because most lions stalk. Mm -hmm. you know, the female lions stalk, the male lions don't really the same way. At least that's my understanding from a lot of Animal Planet as a kid. Um, so if you're listening and I'm completely talking out my here feel free to correct me but when a lion is roaring out on the plains it is to draw out prey it is to scare them and to get them running or to get them sort of almost sheepdogged into you know the waiting other lions in the pride that can jump them yeah okay when it says a roaring lion seeking who he may devour it's like the way that it was always taught to us was that the devil was in the world meaning that all the advertisements that you see and all of the media that you consume and all of the other people that you interact with that put you under things like peer pressure to do drugs or to listen to secular music or to have sex and all those things like that were the roaring lion that was trying to push you as the prey animal into the devouring jaws of sin. I had never heard that analogy before. That's interesting how that's gotten used. Oh, oh yeah. And again, don't know how scientifically accurate that is less inclined to believe that it is because it was coming from church people. <laughs> that's what they're basically saying. And, and in this case, they're saying it to buck, like you need to be vigilant because you are in trouble. They are about to try to sheepdog you into a kill box. Zion says from the podium, hey, I'm about to cover Revelation 9 on the internet next. Uh, Godspeed with both of you. Peace. And then starts the, the, that starts the, uh, the sequence of exit from the stadium. That moves us into chapter 11. Yeah, he comes down on the stage to Buck and goes, we got to go now. Check out my Instagram. <laughs> Bye. Like and subscribe. Bye. <laughs> Beginning of chapter 11. Kind of cool exchange between Ken and Ray. It's going to get into some of the world building that's going to happen later. Ken starts talking about a separatist society wherein the Mark of the Beast arrives. Yeah, we start getting the planning where, you know, like, where they're all like, you know, we uh, we still got to trade during this time. So we're going to have to create some infrastructure for the millions of Christians that exist after the mark comes up. They even mentioned that there's going to be a time where a lot of people neither have the mark of the lamb or the mark of the beast, so they still got to be converting people because once you get the mark of the beast, you're done. You're pretty much damned. It's game over, man. I hadn't thought that far ahead where there's still going to be like a lot of people that have neither, and that's going to be part of, I guess, the race in the next part of the books. Right, to convert or harvest as many souls as possible. At the bottom of this page, I just have written Comrade Tim question mark <laughs> because uh ken goes but i've been doing a lot of thinking i was never one for socialism or communism or even communal living but it seems we're pretty much gonna have to be in a commune from now on in the new testament sense like zion says right and i don't know about you but i don't got a problem with that let's unpack this for a sec huh oh yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> So this is something that I was also taught growing up specifically by my dad. So you got to think about, you know, my dad growing up during the Cold War. Communism is a four-letter word, right? Yeah. When I was growing up, the values of communism that were taught to me, now again, it's not communism. It's not actually communism. It's not actually Marxism. What they're describing is more akin to like Kropotkin style, like anarchism. Mm -hmm. See, now I get to tip a different fedora. <laughs> this one you get to t uh, tip your shanka i get to tip my <laughs> my leftist fedora right 
what they are describing is something that my dad always called godly communism. Yeah. It was something that was practiced during the early church. And I think I've said this in a previous episode, but I'm just going to reiterate it here. The early church, meaning the church that was formed during the book of Acts, was a commune. Yeah. Everybody shared resources. They pooled resources. They took care of each other. They were not liberal subjects in the sense that they bought and sold from each other. It was simply from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That was how everything got shared and distributed. The reason why this was okay and it got a pass was because it was called godly communism and it was because God was at the head and everything was through the church. The word of God and the spirit of God directed them on what they were supposed to do. See, Gavin, the problem with communism, these these Leninists and these Stalinists, they took God out of the equation. And when you have a man in charge, men are fallible. God is not. So under the perfect system under God, we can have communism. It's just when you get people into the mix that the problem happens. And that's why capitalism isn't the best system, but in this fallen world we got here, neoliberal capitalism is all we got because you can't have communism because God's not in charge. Right, it actually kind of reminds me a little bit because last year, around this time actually, for some reason, well, I know why it was because I was bored. I was at home for a prolonged period of time for the first time in a while. So I was just reading. Wait, wait, you were you were at home for a long period of time last year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a- uh, Oh, sh- me too. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what world event that occurred that, that would have uh, had us all staying home. No uh, idea. But I got this idea to start a podcast while I was at home. I actually had an idea to start a podcast while I was at home uh, last year too. It was pretty wild. <laughs> But I, uh, I read the entirety of the catechism and there was a lot of parts of it that I'm just like, this sounds almost like proto-communist theory, but at the same time, they kept on reiterating multiple times in the catechism, we decry communism and socialism, but we also kind of want to function as one, but under the authority of God. It was, it was very strange. So yeah, a lot of Christian denominations kind of have that where they're very communal, but only if you have God at the top of your hierarchy with it. Communism will win. Moving on. Moving, <clears throat> moving into some more economics. We have. Oh, dude. So Ken's a gold guy. Yeah, yeah. Ken. You find out Ken is a gold guy. You know any gold guys? Yeah, I know a few gold guys. If you're listening to like, you know exactly what I mean when I say gold guy. You're like, yeah, I don't trust the banks. You should really. uh Put your money in gold. Now, now they're Bitcoin guys. Yeah, any any alt- alternative currency, they're like just rushing to get into. And uh, yeah, if they're under forty, they're Bitcoin guys. Yeah. If they're over forty, they're probably gold guys. Yeah, Ken is ninety percent precious metal at this point, and uh, he just goes into like his economic philosophy, where he's just like been a miser, never owned a new car, made clothes last for months, wore a cheap watch. He still does. Ken's a man after my own heart. Yeah, he's made millions and saved 80% of it. And now most of that is gold. Oh, and then Ray's just like, did I mention that there's some annual dues for being a member of the tribulation? (laughs) Such a dad joke, dude, but I love it. That was so cute. Man, when Ray does swing in with a dad joke, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, he has has top-tier dad jokes. Ken's just like, I want to buy a couple Gulf Streams. I want to put an offer on Powaukee Airport, which the place is uh, pretty much abandoned by now. So he would be able to get all the equipment, small planes, some choppers, fuel tanks, towers, sundry equipment. He basically wants to become the boomer faction from Fallout New Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what he's trying to do. 
Yeah, he just needs some artillery emplacements, and then you're set. I bet that's what he will be like in the late game of this whole thing, when they're like getting fighters to like bomb the devil. Oh my god. He's got ideas for farming and sea harvesting and private banking and all this. And he's got these in like notebooks. So he's another Donnie. He's a very valuable member of the team who has come up with all this stuff. So Ken, arguably the most valuable member of the force right now. Salutatorian at the London School of Economics. Like this guy is just outrageously smart. Yeah, who knew? Cowboy Ken. Yeah, I studied economics in my day. He talks in an English accent. <laughs> Salutatorian, baby. Made the speech and everything. Thought I was going to be an English teacher. I only talk like this because it's easier. But yours truly is eminently cognizant of the gram uh, grammatical parameters. <laughs> oh my god. Shut up. Like, I love you, Ken, but shut up. So we cut back to Zion and Buck. And like I said, Zion's like, dude, we got to go. Buck tries to get backstage. And here's where things start popping off. Yeah. A guard tries to stop him. Every time a GC guard has tried to stop Buck, immediately I'm like, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> he's going to get one punched. And he doesn't because he, he lifts his hat, shows he's got the mark. He is trying to protect him because snipers are ready to take out Zion. Like we're going to snipers now. Yeah, everyone's got snipers in their inventory now as in this section. Zion and Chloe already in the van. Buck's got to go. Yeah. And it's about that point that the gunshots start. Daniel, the MC, is helping Buck dodge the gunshots get to the van everybody including Hyam, is in the van they take off with stefan and Hyam is just stunned at the level of violence that's being perpetrated by the gc so it's really shaking his faith zion breaks into tears he knew that this was going to happen but he knew that he had to have the conference anyway he feels like he's led everyone like lambs to the slaughter so i'm really feeling for zion at about right now yeah stefan almost runs over a gc guard trying to stop him <laughs> But they make it away. Back to Ken again. We get a little anecdote about how he's buried all of his money. Yeah. Which is kind of funny considering the parable of the talents. Do you remember that? I don't remember. Like, what's that one? Jesus tells a parable, and I can't remember what book that it's in. It's about three servants who were given money mm -hmm. by their master to take care of while he was away. One of them invested and made several times more one of them put it in a bank and made the money back with interest, and the third buried it. Okay. The third one is rebuked by the master when he comes back because he didn't do anything with the money. Ah. He did not try to make it grow. And basically the master says, I almost just wish you had lost it all gambling or you had lost it all trying to invest rather than just let it sit in the ground and do nothing. So that's kind of the illusion that they're making here. They're going to dig that gold up and they're going to put it to work for the kingdom. Yeah, and Ken almost dies getting the, like, burying it up. He thinks he loses it all in the earthquake. Right after the earthquake, he's going for his gold, even at the risk of, like, any aftershocks, like, making the ground tumble underneath him. And it even goes down further into the earth because of the earthquake, making it even riskier to get. So they get back to the compound safely, Hyam and the rest of the crew, and Zion and Hyam start their talk. They're going to have to track down Yakov because he is off for the night and he can't get the key back to them. So things are starting to get kind of dicey here with their plan. They say, you know what? Forget it. We're just going to tell Hyam what's up. Like he's come this far. He knows what's up. We're just going to ask him if we can use the roof. Yeah. Ray and Ken are starting their descent. Buck realizes as he sees on TV that the GC guard that he talked to has been killed and he blames himself. Yeah. So we got another one that Buck's like, man, I did this. This is my fault. 
Yep. And I'm starting to kind of pull back with some of my intensity that I had last time about Buck being a soldier. He's not. He's not making that transition. Yeah, Buck, Buck's a journalist. Yeah, he's really starting to be like, no, I caused this guy's death and I can't shake that. Like, I'm not doing this. So I kind of still am on team Buck here. Okay. We move into chapter 12 and this is where things get incredibly intense. I'm just going to put a content warning at the beginning of this. I will let you know when to skip ahead because there is some very violent stuff in this chapter. And we're going to go through it pretty quick just so you don't have to miss too much. And because it is definitely an action scene. So they swap out the choppers. They tell Hyam about the bugging device and about Nikolai and that they have to escape. And Hyam just like, fine, fine. I understand. They're after you. Break the door down. We don't care. Okay. Raised 10 minutes out. Hyam is trying to distract the GC because the GC are trying to show up to arrest Buck. Buck is officially wanted now. Like his luck has run out. The GC's coming for him. Things are starting to reach a boiling point. Hyam locks down the compound. No one gets in, closes the gates, even though there are GC vans that are trying to get in. Hyam is going in against the GC now because he's kind of invincible. Like they still can't touch him because he's Israel's favorite son. We cut back to Rayford. They're refueling the Gulf Stream right now, right before they're about to try to take off. Uh, they, he talks to Mac real quick. Have they all got weapons over there? And he's like, yeah, two armed guys are with them. Like, what, what are Ken supposed to do if he encounters him? Play it cool like he's supposed to be there, but evade as soon as possible. That kid knows I'm not in the air. So, like, stakes are high. They know that uh, at any moment, anyone could be taken out. So- Important bit here, there was only one helicopter. Yeah. So the plan is already starting to unravel. Mm-hmm. So they get to the airstrip and Ken takes the only available GC chopper where there were supposed to be two. He takes the one. Leon had ordered a chopper to go to Hyam's place to shine a spotlight on him and try to like order them to leave. So Ken is kind of quote supposed to be there. Yeah. So it's going to buy him a little bit of time. They're about to leave. The plan starts unraveling. So they start just huddling together and praying, waiting for the real helicopter to get there. So Ken descends, gets everybody onto the chopper and starts to get away. Almost immediately he's ID'd. Yeah. And they say like, Hey, you need to set this chopper down or be guilty of air piracy. And he totally Han Solo's them like, uh, negative, negative. We got a big reactor leak up there. Everything's fine. Thank you. Uh, how are you? <laughs> Love Ken, dude. Yeah. Boring conversation, anyone. And starts zipping toward the airstrip. He's running low and he's running dark. So it's super dangerous. Like he's flying very low and has his lights off. And because he's trying to avoid radar, they even spot him and be like, hey, turn your lights on and land you're flying pretty dangerously starts getting them into the gulf stream he makes it to the airstrip yeah he makes it to the airstrip and ray's all fueled up ready to go and when they get there he can't put down so ken starts leapfrogging over the gc vans that are already parked on the airstrip like buzzing them like flying close to them and then like going back up and then back down which super dangerous when you're in a helicopter yeah but ken's a pro He's trying to confuse them. He's on the other side of the airstrip. So they're going to have to set down and make a run for it. And Ray's basically having to watch helplessly because he's trying to maintain his cover as someone who is not involved in this. Mm -hmm. Chloe and Zion make it on first because Ken hits the tarmac and slides toward the Gulf Stream. Chloe and Zion slip out. Buck and Ken got to make a run for it. Okay, I'm going to put the content warning in here. Go ahead and skip ahead about two or three minutes. Yeah. Because it gets very, very gory here. And then you want to read what happens next? 
Buck was about to leap up the steps when Ken's forehead opened. Buck felt the heat and smelled the metal as the killing bullet sliced his own ear on the way by, and his face was splashed by Ken's gore. The big man's eyes were wide and vacant as he drops out of sight. Ken is dead before he hits the ground, and Buck's instincts instantly turn to his own survival. Holy sh! Yeah. That, like, threw me off guard, because, yeah, Ken's forehead opens. That, ugh, what a few words. Yeah, it's incredibly jarring. Yeah. Like, it is such a powerful image, but it's also very, very, very unsettling. Yeah. I don't want to linger on that too long, but I know I've been talking up Ken this whole episode. Sorry. Rest in so. peace, Ken. <laughs> Yeah, R.I.P. Ken. But the action's not over. Yeah, the action keeps on going. Because Ray's having to go because they're now getting shot at. And uh, the plane starts to move and they're going to have to close the door and Buck's not on the plane. So he's hanging by the railing of the door as the plane's about to become airborne and go over the fence at the far end of the runway. And Buck realizes he's not going to make it. Oh, no. So he lets go. Yeah. Crashes into the bushes. So we end chapter 12 with Buck hitting the ground, everybody else safe on the plane, going back to the States. So the tribulation force is separated and one of them has been killed. We're not done. There's more to the episode. <laughs> yep. And now there's there's some more logistic stuff we're going to go over here um, and definitely plot stuff. But I just want to take a minute. And man, losing Ken is a real blow. Yeah. I like that hurt me. I wanted him to stick around. This is up there with like Loretta bad. Yeah, this is I, I would say this like is on the same par as uh when Bruce died as well cuz it's like a character that is interesting to read about and he had like a lot of development in this book specifically. That I'm like, "Oh, I want to see where this goes." Which uh again they kind of do the postmortem thing where the characters like works so to speak, continue on even after they're they're gone. Yeah, their efforts outlive them. Yeah. And they have to pass it to one of the main four, or, mm -hmm. you know, I guess the main three now. I guess Chloe becomes like the backup kin in some ways. Definitely. Yeah. So they're just kind of repeating to themselves, he's in a better place, he's in a better place, which is, I mean, even if you know that, that's a really hard thing to deal with. Yeah. So like I was here for this. Like I was present in this scene, all jokes aside. This one really affected me. I don't know about you. Yeah, it did for me as well, especially like Kim was in a better place. He told himself and it sounded as hollow as any platitude. That line specifically, I was like, I feel that he was a brilliant guy. And they're just looking at his notes and like some of this reads like a manifesto of survival for the saints. So Ken, like Bruce, is still going to be a backbone of this team, even in death. Yeah. So we immediately find out what happens to Buck. He's beaten, he's broken, he's cut up, the bullet sliced his ear. He's in real bad shape. So he decides to go to the whaling. He hails a cab, weirdly driven by an Australian? This uh, this Australian guy is one of my favorite characters so far. I like this guy. The first line is, you got the money, mate? And then about a few lines later, he's just like, are you Australian? He's like, how'd you guess? Where to, mate? I don't know. It seems that Tim LaHaye has just coded you as an Australian character based on some mannerisms. Yeah, he's got an Aussie thing. So he, this guy's kind of wheeling and dealing, sort of profiteering off Buck's situation. So Buck pays him in cash for a Bible that the guy was given, pays him for some clothes, so a turban and a scarf so he can disguise himself. Buck back with the hats. 
Oh, we're doing old embedded journalist buck and he gets some, uh, he gets stitched up at a back alley doctor too. So there's some more night city for you. He has actually three Bibles in his car already. And he's, he's been ferrying some witnesses like back and forth to the airport and he's gotten three loads of them. And every time they try to convert him and they give him a Bible and that's why he has some extra ones to sell. Buck is making his way to the Wailing Wall. Cut back to the other team. Chloe is going through Ken's notes and knows that he has a contact in Greece because they're going to need to stop somewhere and refuel and lay low for a minute. And so they find a guy named Lucas Miklos. Yeah. And they land in Greece. Turns out that Ken had actually witnessed to Lucas and his wife. Lucas is a mining magnate. Ah. Specifically of something called lignite. You know what lignite is? No, I don't know what lignite is. The type of coal. Okay. Think about it like coal mining. And it is the backup plan for the GC with their solar power. Ah. Because they're about to lose it. Okay. Lucas has a lucrative contract with the GC. He calls it taking the enemy's money. (laughs) We find that they have an ally in Greece. And I believe Lucas and his wife have a bigger part to play in the later books. I'm going to have to refresh as we go forward. Look forward to it. Buck makes it to the Temple Mount to see Eli and Moisha, and they're doing their thing. They're quoting scripture. They are getting the crowd riled up. The crowd is shouting and calling for their death. And I wrote in my notes, this has the same energy as the crowd before Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Calling for Jesus's death. This is such a Mel Gibson level anti-Semitic trope that it actually made me very uncomfortable. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the bloodthirsty Jewish mob calling for the servants of the Most High to be killed. Screw you, man. I don't like that at all. Yeah, not a fan either. You know how in previous books I was being like, man, like I wonder if we're going to get a scenario where Carpathia tries to just like throw missiles down on the witnesses? That starts happening here. Very close. Not quite missiles, but we're pretty much there. Yeah, a GC bullhorn warns everyone to retreat and says, And to the two who are under arrest, you have 60 seconds to surrender peacefully. We have strategically placed concussion bombs, mines, and mortars with kill power in a 200-yard radius. Evacuate now or stay at your own peril. The clock begins when the last translation of this announcement has has ended. Then it goes in the same message, but translated into like a bunch of different languages. Everyone's dispersing, like trying to crouch behind barriers and stuff so they don't get killed. A GC guard comes out towards Eli and Moisha, decked out in military ribbons, but he's unarmed with hands in the air and just going towards the witnesses to try to like work something out and take them peacefully, which not going to work. They throw their whole dare not approach the servants of the most high God, even with an empty hand, save yourself, find shelter in caves or behind rocks. Which is more Bible quoting. That's a weird line, but it's more Bible quoting. Yeah. Like we said, the GC has mined the entire area and they're just going to blow up the witnesses. As soon as the GC guards approach, a sniper takes position, tries to shoot, gets torched into a pile of ashes. They literally describe the body disintegrating. And then everything goes dark and hail begins to fall. And as the hail is falling, the explosives fizzle out along with all the lights. Yep. The hail begins to melt almost as soon as it falls. The water dries up and everything blows away as dust. Yep. And during this entire time, Eli and Moisha have not moved at all. Yep. It is not the due time. And we know that by now. Yep. So back to the group in Greece, they get together and they say a prayer for Buck's protection. 
Yeah, we close out with that really cool Eli and Moisha scene. Like I said, like a lot of the neat moments with Eli and Moisha are starting to become more common than we have in books past. They're kind of like front and center now that get pretty much like you can guarantee every chapter they're going to get at least a little bit of screen time. And if they don't, the next chapter will just have like doubly so. Well, and it's good that they're doing that because if we're going by the timeline of Revelation, we don't have much longer with them. Yeah. Oh, this could just be throwing out a shot in the dark, but the due time is going to be probably sometime next book. Just about. Oh, man. It's coming. But for now, we're going to have to close out of this section of Apollyon, Destroyers Unleashed. Come back next week for the conclusion. And oh, boy, the conclusion of Apollyon is everything we've been hoping for. It's my favorite part. It's my favorite part. <laughs> oh. Actually, maybe it's not my part of the whole thing. But now, next week, we are getting into, I promise, the reason that I asked you to do this podcast with me. Oh, yeah, I am. This I'm just the thing I pitched to you when we first came up with this idea. And I am beyond excited. So, yeah, we're going to go ahead and close things out here. Thank you guys again for joining us on another episode of I Survived the Rapture. And come see us again next week. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. Uh, until next time, uh, don't hang your key next to the door that you need your key for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSource Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSource.com and check out the IndieSource Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can help you.